celebrate the launch of David Rothkopf's new book, American Resistance, the inside story of how the deep state saved the nation by becoming a member today. This month, new members will receive a free signed copy of the book, along with the usual member benefits, including an ad-free listening experience, members-only bonus content, an invitation to join the DSR Network Slack community, and more. To take advantage of this offer, visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and select the option titled American Resistance. Upon successful checkout, you will receive a confirmation email with instructions on how to redeem the book. The book retails for $29, but is included with this membership option. You'll just pay for shipping. Please allow two to four weeks for shipping. Thank you very much. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of our podcast. Uh, Pleasure to be with you today. I'm David Rothkopf. I'm your host, and we are joined today from Washington, D.C., by a great group, beginning with, of course, Corey Shockey. Corey is a senior fellow and director of foreign and defense policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute. How are you doing, Corey? I am exceedingly well, David. Exceedingly well. That is the way it should be. And joining us from not too far from Washington, D.C., using an internet connection that consists of a paper cup and a long, long piece of string, we have Rosa Brooks who is the Scott K. Ginsburg Chair at Law and Law and Policy at Georgetown University Law Center, where she also serves as the Associate Dean for Centers and Institutes. How are you doing, Rosa? I'm well, David. Thank you. Very, very good to hear you. And our uh, guest today is our friend Mara Rudman. Mara is the Executive Vice President for Policy at the Center for American Progress. She's held many senior positions in the U.S. government. How are you doing today, Mara? I am doing okay, though I don't think I can match Corey's exceedingly well, but I'm impressed by it. Well, every single week starts with us when Corey says she's exceedingly well. She, by the way, has said this while her home was surrounded by forest fires. So I'm not... And right now, I am experiencing my first cold in three years having been exposed to the biological weapons that are the infants in uh, our Thanksgiving gathering. Those are are dangerous biological weapons. Well, in in any event, what we want to talk about here for the next half an hour or so is where U.S. foreign policy is likely to go over the next couple of years, the, the second half of the first term of the Biden administration, now that we've got an election under our belt. And of course, Had we had this conversation, as we undoubtedly did, in the wake of the 2020 election, many of us might have predicted, as I suspect we did, that much U.S. foreign policy in the first term would focus on China. Not many of us would have suggested that the signature foreign policy issue for the Biden administration would be waging 
or supporting Ukraine waging a war against Russia. Now, the Biden administration, I think, has proven that it has considerable foreign policy and national security chops, but they're going to be working effectively with one hand tied behind their back with a Republican-controlled House of Representatives. Mara, how do you think that's likely to affect U.S. foreign policy over the next couple of years? I actually do not think the Republican-controlled House will affect U.S. foreign policy in terms of the direction that President Biden is taking, has taken. I think it will make things more difficult on the domestic front. It may confuse some of the messaging or communications that is, it's coming out because of what Leader McCarthy has already indicated he intends to do and make more difficult in terms of things like Ukraine and uh, the consistency of U.S. messaging toward it. But I don't think in terms of actual impact on the direction that P President Biden takes that they will be, I hope and I expect that they will not be able to do real harm to the direction of the policies. Okay. Well, I hope, hope that's uh, right. Uh, Dr. Shockey, do you concur? Yeah, I agree with Mara. My reading of Kevin McCarthy's comments about not giving Ukraine a blank check struck me more as caucus management than as foreign policy. And uh, I think is likely he's trying to balance the budget hawks on the Republican side. And uh, we're not now giving Ukraine a blank check. And so I think that should be a pretty easy standard to meet. Where I am worried about the Congress controlled by my own Republican Party is the performative dragging of national security officials. I think Mark Milley is going to be first in line to be excoriated for anything he might or might not have ever done. And the delegitimizing of people who are trying to serve America's national interests, I think, is bad for our national security. It's bad for our foreign policy. And I very much hope that my fellow Republicans will focus on legislating and doing the things that that are Congress's power to do. Providing oversight is certainly one of them, but passing the budget is the most important congressional prerogative, and they haven't done it. And it's hugely consequential for foreign and security policy because the $48 billion that Congress added to the Biden administration's deficient defense budget has now been wiped away by continuing resolutions, not so not passing the budget on time, and inflation. Congress needs to exercise its own constitutional prerogatives. The failure of Congress to do that is actually hugely unbalancing American policy writ large, including foreign and defense policy. Corey, if only they were your Republican Party. Rosa, what, what, do you, what do you feel is likely to change or be a challenge or perhaps nothing? What do you, what do you feel? I, I'm going to be very boring and agree with Corey and Mara. I, you know, I don't think it's going to change anything about the Biden foreign policy agenda. I think there will be more, as, as Corey says, there'll be more performances. There'll be more noisemaking, which will be distracting. It'll make everything a little bit harder. But the Republicans, obviously, even though they have the House majority, 
they are internally divided and that majority is very, very small. And I don't think that they're going to have the ability to come together in a unified way to block anything, nor, nor in fact, do I think there is a majority there that would want to block anything in a significant way right now. You know, it's, it's, it's obviously we've got the, a tiny fraction of the GOP members of the house who just don't think we should be doing anything to support Ukraine, but that's not a, at the moment, a particularly powerful or large group. So, you know, I I think it's going to be more annoying, but probably substantively unchanged. Okay. So we may get to Ukraine later, but, you know, I think there's a consensus about what the Biden administration wants to do there for the near future. We can talk about what that looks like getting closer to the election. Let me start someplace else. Let me start with an area that you have a lot of familiarity with, Mara, which has a domestic component to it. I actually have a column coming out in tomorrow's Daily Beast um, about what I see as a potential challenge to the historic U.S. relationship with Israel. The new government in Israel has far-right components to it that have a lot of people alarmed. Now, Bibi Netanyahu has in the past embraced the far right, but he's now putting people in his administration who in the past have been affiliated with terrorist groups, taken a a radical stand on settlements, are openly anti-LGBTQ. And there are people in the U.S. government who've actually grappled with the question, should we even talk to some of these people? And Netanyahu, of course, has embraced partisan politics in Washington in the past and could do so again in the future. What's your prognosis for this particular special relationship? I would say that this relationship is is going to go through yet another challenging moment. It will not be the first. It will not be the last. But the relationship itself will continue. I think it will force even in even more compelling terms what we've what has been raised in the past about the nature of democracy and the nature of our partnerships in the region and the reasons that we may have partnerships for a range of reasons. But I also want to underscore one point you made, David. I actually think you treated softly, though not intentionally so, the description of who uh, Netanyahu is in bed with as as far right. Uh, these are Ben Gavir leads a Meyer Kahane organization, which Israel itself considered a terrorist organization. I, in ancient times, did uh, a law school paper, law review piece on administrative detention law and Israel's use of it. It was first created for use in Jerusalem because of Mayor Kahani's groups and what he did and what he followed. And that's what Ben Gavir is about. So it is beyond racist. It is absolutely terrorist. And it is, there aren't words for how concerning it is that somebody like this would be, have a formal position in government. So it really will crystallize for the United States who we talk to within that government. I don't think it's about whether we speak with the government, but certainly whether we draw lines on who we're willing to speak with and why that would be. I would also note that it's going to split the American Jewish community because Ben Gavir himself, the minister, the the most controversial actor in that coalition, at the same time that Netanyahu was describing publicly why everyone should be willing to speak with him, was making proclamations about the right of return, citizenship in Israel not applying to Reform Jews, but only to Orthodox Jews. 
So even within the American Jewish community, there's a number of reasons that he's extraordinarily controversial. And so, yes, it'll be a very bumpy time for the the relationship, which already had challenges um, uh, for various reasons in terms of Israeli-Palestinian issues and, and broader issues. Yeah, I'm no expert on Israeli politics, but it seems to me that Mara is correct that the relationship is going to get even more difficult. Netanyahu made a choice during the Trump years to make support for Israel or to make Israel support in the United States stridently partisan. It's interesting to me how much of support for the Israeli government's choices in the United States does not come from American Jewry, but comes from evangelical Christians. And that strikes me as a worrisome factor for Israeli-American relations. I also think the increasing closeness of Israel's relationship with Saudi Arabia is going to be problematic because the Saudi-American relationship is also tobogganing towards possibly unrecoverable depths. And so the association between the two countries may actually be negative for Israel in its United States relationships even if positive in managing security in the region. And I think the behavior of many Israeli firms, certainly in the cyber surveillance space, is also going to make the national security relationship incredibly difficult. And the last part that I think in a national security sense is going to really make the relationship difficult is Israel's refusal to provide support to Ukraine, to join the 50 countries assisting Ukraine against Russia's breach of the UN Charter and invasion of Ukraine. I think all of those things are going to make the Israeli-American relationship deeply troubled, even before you get to the constitution of who's in the Israeli government. Right. But of course, when you do get to the constitution of who's in the Israeli government, you get conclusions that it is drifting further and further down a road. So can I say one more thing, David, which is that there are noises that the UAE in particular, and possibly also the Saudis are going to press the Israeli, the Netanyahu government on Palestinian issues because this is the constitution of this Israeli government is is such an affront on that score. But I see Mara is skeptical that that's possible. The look was having had a number of very challenging discussions with uh, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, at times with the Emirates, with others in the Gulf, um, asking for help uh, in um, in bolstering the Palestinian uh, case and U.S. policy in that regard, vis-a-vis Israel at some points, there's a lot of words and very little action. And sometimes, I've got to say, in the case of Saudi Arabia, on my most recent conversation on this, which was sometime in the middle of Trump's first term, not even words. I mean, it was it was breathtaking how little they were willing to do. And their, their choice is, is with Israel for sure, regardless of what they may say publicly. And I would say under almost any circumstances. If you're like me, you're probably a bit frustrated with the state of our political system today. So 
why does American democracy look the way it does? And how can we make it more responsive to the people it was formed to serve? Democracy Decoded is a podcast by the Campaign Legal Center. It examines our government and discusses innovative ideas that could lead to a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. In season two, host Simone Leeper covers everything you need to know about voting in the United States. She speaks with experts from across the country and voters representing impacted communities about the deliberate barriers to voting that exist today. She asks, how can we make our voting system more inclusive? Because our democracy works best when every voter can participate. Listen to the latest season at democracydecoded.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I mean, I think that may be tested, Rosa, the almost under any circumstances part, because some of these people are pretty extreme and they may do things with regard to the Palestinians that are, are challenging to the relationship. I saw a piece in Haaretz the other day by an Israeli historian named Yuval Harari, who talked about Israel moving away from this idea of a two-state solution to the idea of a three-class solution in Israel, where Israelis have rights, some Arabs have some rights, and a bunch of Arabs have no rights at all. A, f- a friend of ours who's been on the podcast, Alon Pincus, has has you know re- reiterated that and has written about how um, the U.S. and Israel were bound together by shared values, and there's a real question on a bunch of these issues, like democracy, like human rights, um, uh, like Ukraine, uh, whether we actually do share values. What's your outlook, Rosen? Yeah, I mean, I, I I think this is going to be really tough. Um, I think that uh, Netanyahu and and the Trump wing of the Republican Party share values, um, but it's not particular. But but certainly, I think there's a significant divergence from you know, where the American Democratic Party and and nice Republicans such as Corey are, and where the Israeli government is. An increasingly significant percentage of Israeli society, obviously, it's it's not just uh, people vote for these people, right? Situating it in terms of the global democratic retreat, and or at least the global democratic precariousness, best case for the U.S., is right. Um, It's not just Israel. It's part of that much broader trend of of people losing faith in the ability of democratically elected states to protect them while still abiding by key commitments to human rights, civil rights, social justice, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that there there clearly is a broader trend to say, we don't care, just fix things, make them work. And if you have to lock up a whole bunch of people to do it, or you have to decide that a chunk of society gets no rights to do it, that's 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 okay with us. And that's really scary, right? I also think that looping this back to your your first question of how will any how will the Biden administration's foreign policy agenda be changed after the election? both as a consequence of the midterms and as a consequence of Netanyahu returning to his role as prime minister in Israel, I think that empowers the American far right. I think we already saw Trump doing his darndest to 
exploit and further create a wedge within the American Jewish community by claiming that that Biden, you know, is an enemy of Israel, et cetera. That's going to continue. We're going to see the right in this country use anything other than U.S. blanket support for everything Netanyahu wants as a way to try to beat up the Biden administration as a way to drive not only Jewish voters, but as, as Corey said, evangelical voters, et cetera, away from the Democratic Party and towards the more extremist wing of the Republican Party. And, you know, it may not be enough. It may be it may be insufficient to actually lead to that, that those pressures to actually change anything. But it will certainly be part of what makes the Biden administration's job more challenging in the next two years, because there's going to be kind of a constant drumbeat of criticism. Uh, it's going to be linked to Iran. It's going to be linked to all sorts of issues. If Biden says anything whatsoever that is critical, they'll beat him up over it. So, so you know, it's again, will it change things ultimately in the final result? I don't think so. But I do think it's going to be, you know, yet another just irritation and distraction for the next couple of years for the administration. I, I don't want us to err on the side of which I think is happens a lot in U.S. discussion on the Middle East of a disproportionate focus on Israel. Um, I think there are the underlying things that that Rosa has talked about. I also have to say that I think that whether it's Alon Picas or whoever described that what is essentially the one state reality now, it's not what Israel is getting toward. I think we still have to be pushing for a two state solution. But the one state reality that is Israel now is exactly what you laid out, David. It is a set of democratic rights for Jewish Israelis, a lesser set for Arab Israelis, which is not explicitly written into law, but for people who do not serve in the military, there's a whole package of rights and benefits that accompanies service in the military, with the exception for ultra-Orthodox Jews who don't participate, but not those same exceptions for Israeli Arabs. And then the the if you're West Bank or Gazan Palestinian, you don't have right, you know, rights in a in um any real sense at this point. So that's the one state reality. I think it is a, a it has been a steady trend of Israel for a long time. I would also say though that I think it is a a little bit of a rose-colored lens that the only reason the United States, the basis for the United States relationship with Israel is shared values. I think it is a component part, but there is a strategic and security interest in the relationship or there has been historically which is at times undermined by what Corey pointed to, which is things like what Israeli tech companies are doing. We all know there have been challenges in general on the cyber side for a long time with Israel. So it's been a challenging partnership in a number of ways for a long time. I think, again, these there are new elements to it, but we will continue to work our way through it. And the bigger challenge to me is what Rosa had pointed out in her comments about what it takes for democracies to deliver and to be shown to be delivering writ large and how we as the United States, what opportunities we have to do better on that, which includes Israel in that picture, but not exclusively focusing there. Certainly not. But I am just in the interest of heeding your caution there, but also in the interest of time, let me shift the focus a little bit. At the outset, Corey, I said we would have been correct in predicting that U.S. and uh, had, would China policy would be at the center of Biden administration foreign policy. I think we might have underestimated it. If you look at the national security strategy, the national defense strategy, the speeches of the president when he took office, uh, first major speech of the secretary of state, virtually everything the U.S. has done, China has been a subtext in the policy. Now, 
there has, it seems, been sort of a couple of threads to U.S.-China policy. And one of them is from a group that exists within the administration and elsewhere in Washington that is deeply concerned about the China threat and has been pushing the U.S. in the direction of what some people have called a new Cold War, isolating China, counterbalancing China wherever possible, penalizing China uh, in a number of critical areas. But the, the tone taken by President Biden in his meeting with President Xi in Bali was somewhat more conciliatory and constructive, included an upcoming visit for the Secretary of State, included re-engagement issues like uh, uh, climate. And then on top of all of that, you've got the upheaval that's going on in China, which includes some structural weakness and also includes a reaction to some terrible policies. Most recently, in the past few days, major protests calling out President Xi in ways that would have been unthinkable in, 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 in the recent past for his COVID policies and for his policies with regard to the Uyghurs. So what, what is your expectation for the U.S.-China relationship in the next couple of years? My expectation for the U.S.-China relationship is that it is going to continue to be incredibly difficult and conflictual because I agree with you about a lot of the emphasis the Biden administration has put on China. Where it has not put that emphasis is either in the spending in the defense budget or the disposition of American military forces. So they are talking a better game in the national security strategy and the national defense strategy then they are actually delivering. For example, the Biden defense budget did not include the Pacific Deterrence Initiative to provide near-term resilience to U.S. forces in the Pacific. So on the military piece of it, they are talking a better game than they're delivering. On the economic and technology piece of it, they are delivering amazingly, incentivizing chip production, not just in the U.S., but potentially in allied countries. I really like the way the Secretary of the Treasury talks about friendshoring. I wouldn't describe the Biden administration policy as seeking to isolate China. What it feels like to me is trying to force China to play by the rules that everybody else plays by, and that we, for understandable reasons across four or five American presidential administrations gave China a pass on before realizing the deleterious disadvantage that they were imposing on us and others. Walter Russell Mead has a nice piece in the uh, Wall Street Journal today, arguing that America's superpower is the ability to bring strong, wealthy, assertive countries on side in the challenge that China poses. And he uses the example of Japan which has made the most interesting strategic choices of anybody in about the last 15 years. But it's China's behavior that's driving this. The Biden administration's success on China would not be possible if China wasn't scaring and intimidating everybody else. And so what you see is that, once again, the success of American foreign policy is that we make it safe for others to do what is in their own interests. 
And I think the Biden administration is doing a pretty good job on that on China. I also like that the president wasn't fire and brimstone in talking to his Chinese counterpart, because it brings to mind one of my favorite Republicans, Teddy Roosevelt, talking softly and carrying a big stick. I just wish he'd invest in a bigger stick. Rosa, I'm going to change the subject. I would encourage you, if you want to start off with a comment on China, to do so. But I'd like to ask you how you think U.S. policy towards Ukraine is likely to change in the next couple of years, if at all. Yeah, well, so one thing I did want to say about China before I talk about Ukraine, um, one thing I wish was different, but is almost certainly not going to be within the Biden administration's ability to control Part of what China is doing very successfully around the world is being there in Africa, being there in Latin America, et cetera, investing heavily, being generally helpful, right, to governments down there from their perspective, right? From their perspective, the U.S. is basically absent and China is there. And if we can't counter that, you know, I think all of the things that Corey says, oh, we should do this, we should do that, that's right. But we can do all of those things. But if we, you know, I mean, this is is the sort of people vote their pocketbooks to some extent. You know, if China is there dangling carrots and we are absent, that it's going to be really hard to combat that in terms when it comes to sort of the battle for global influence and global leadership. Now, I think the Biden administration agrees with this. The trouble is that we do not have a Congress uh, that has any willingness to put in the funding that we would need to combat it. We maybe don't even have the money, um, which is another story. But anyway, that, that that's what in some ways worries me most, most in the long term, right? There are all sorts of short-term potential flashpoints, but in terms of long-term influence, that I think is what is going to be most significant. On your question about Ukraine, I don't actually think things are going to change dramatically as a result of the midterms. You know, I think that already. We, well, or at all, at all. I, I, you yeah. know, well, as a result of changing situation on the ground. Yeah. Example. I mean, it's it's going to be really tough to, to know, right? I think that I think that the recent Ukrainian successes have temporarily sort of buoyed U.S. Uh, willingness and U.S. popular support. As we know, as we've discussed many times, the, you know, Americans have a short attention span. We don't like long, boring conflicts. Uh, we don't like them when they're other people's. We don't like them when they're ours, right? And I think that depending on how things go, especially with the Republican majority in the House, there's certainly going to be more foot dragging, more opposition and more scrutiny of, of aid to Ukraine. To some extent, the, the scrutiny is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, foot dragging is not a great thing. But, but you know, being sure that we know what we're doing, what is our plan, et cetera, those questions, it's not necessarily a bad thing for them to be asked. I think the thing that is most likely to change Ukraine policy, if anything, is not going to be the Republicans controlling the House. It's more likely to be just generic American fatigue, especially if we don't have, you know, big, obvious, flashy victories that we can all say yay about. If it does turn into a quieter, more quagmire-ish conflict, uh, I think it's going to be very, very hard to sustain congressional interest in continuing to provide support at the level we're providing with it, providing it now, much less stepping it up. Okay, so we've we've got f just four or five minutes left. So I'm just going to pose each one of you a quick question on a different part of the world. Feel free to ignore my question, as you often do, and answer any question you'd like or respond to what your colleagues have said. Mara, in the next two years, what's the flashpoint you're worried about the most, and why isn't it North Korea, or is it? 
So uh, actually, the first point I'm worried about most is the inability to raise the debt ceiling uh, in the United States. And so that that is a place where Leader McCarthy, and it may not seem like a foreign policy topic, but it absolutely is because it will, if we have huge and extended debates about raising the debt ceiling, never mind Corey's concerns about a higher defense budget or Rosa's interest in greater foreign assistance, we will be jeopardizing every aspect of not only the United States economy, but the global economy as well. And uh, and an extended debate on those terms as well, or different items being held hostage, which is what has happened in the past with Republican-controlled houses, in which Leader McCarthy has given every indication he's going to be going forward to do as he becomes Speaker. That is what I think is actually the single most worrisome flashpoint. And it also goes to, I will just use my time to say some of the points that, to some of the points that Corey and Rosa made, my kind of head back and forth on China is cleaning our clock in various ways. The United States position in Africa, in the African continent and in Latin America, but it's not because of offering carrots. It's because they're there. They seize opportunities. It's the reason they control the critical mineral supply chain. Globally, Japan actually was an example of breaking away from that control. And we need, we, the United States, mean to get more effective, not just in the foreign assistance we provide, but in our ability to provide investment that will be on far better terms for these key countries than China offers. And we are just, we have been lagging on that. There are some provisions in chips and science that were actually meant to improve how we offer investment through Trade Development Agency. Um, and Development Finance Corporation, I'm not sure those made it into the final version of the, the law. And those would not require additional assistance, by the way, just t- changing the terms of, of our legal provisions. So uh, long response, it starts with the debt ceiling and I think ends with the debt ceiling, but uh, because that so encompasses everything else we'd want to be able to do in the world. Okay, Corey, well, let me rephrase the question to you, Corey. North Korea? I am less worried about North Korea than you are, David, uh, for two reasons. First, because I'm not sure what they are trying to accomplish beyond, uh, you know, the paranoia that we or others will attempt to overthrow their government. So I don't see a political objective that them doing more than showing the plumage of their weaponry achieves for them. And second, I noticed that the that Kim Jong Un has uh, started showcasing his daughter, uh, which means he cares about the future and possibly even a succession plan. And since I think the right response to any threat North Korea would pose to the United States or its allies is not retribution in kind, but the destruction of the leadership in North Korea, I think we have a pretty good counter to deploy in any potential crisis. Okay, well, we're talking about flashpoints here, uh, Rosa. What is the completely unforeseeable thing that you foresee? None of the things I foresee are completely unforeseeable, because if they were, I wouldn't be able to foresee them. But I, I, I actually, well, first of all, I, I agree with Corey. I think North Korea is sort of the least of our worries right now. And Mara, thank you. Absolutely right. It's not just foreign assistance. It's also clearing the path for private investment um, in, in terms of countering China's role in Latin America and Africa. I will stick to my usual theme in terms of not unforeseeable, but stuff people don't like to think about in terms of flashpoints, um, which is which is the future of American democracy. 
you know, I don't think we're out of the woods. Um, as you know, uh, I think we, we have a reprieve. Things could have been awful, right? We There was one potential outcome of the midterms that I think would have pushed us past the tipping point when it comes to the future of American democracy, and that didn't happen. We're still on the good side of the tipping point, and we have two years to try to help make sure that we stay there. But as ever, I worry that that in particular, the sort of democratic instinct is to go, that threat's over, who? Now we don't need to worry about that too much anymore. You know, maybe we'll pay attention to it again, you know, when it's say, you know, September or October 2024, but until then, we're not going to fret. And that I think would be uh, the worst possible thing to do. I think that the threat of right-wing extremism, the threat of sort of election deniers, the threat of election interference by those who purport to believe that the 2020 election was stolen is still out there and is still very real. And if we are not able collectively to ensure that the reprieve we got in the midterms becomes more permanent, that we are we are genuinely returning to a, a state of normalcy, everything we care about will be totally upended. Excellent points. And I think very telling that two, two of you have zeroed in on domestic points, which were presaged by the, the third among you. I would add that one thing that worries me is the potential threats to the stability of bad autocrats, whether it's that they falter and that causes chaos, or whether it's that they overreact in a in a in a in a brutal way to the threats, um, and that could in- be a group that included Putin could include Xi Jinping, and could include the government of Iran. And I think we'll have to watch. We'll have to watch in those cases. There are legitimate voices being raised up and legitimate reasons to think they may face some internal challenges. And as we've seen, you know, in the past couple of years and through all of human history, governments are seldom quite as... uh, quite as set in stone as we think they are, because last April we wouldn't have predicted three British prime ministers in the course of a couple of months either. In any event, talking to you three is always extremely illuminating. I am very grateful, as I am sure the audience is. Thank you, Mara. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Rosa. Thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, Come back uh, tomorrow. We'll do a special deep dive podcast with the author of a new book on uh, China. And then on Thursday, we will do take a look at some of the shifting political sands here in the US, plus all of our other podcasts. So those are just the the DSR ones. So please stick with us, check your feed, and uh, we'll be back with you again real soon. For now, bye-bye.